All right, this morning we continue in our look at Genesis 1, at this, this prelude to the book. Again, when I say prelude or prologue, I should say, uh, Genesis is arranged into 10 sections, these holodotes, and the first holodote commences at chapter 2, verse 4. And so this part here is kind of the prologue, reminding us of what was and what came to be. So we read again from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, <coughs> to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. <clears throat> and there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. 
And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it reveals. We thank you that you indeed have created all that is. We ask that in this time, we would faithfully attend to your word, that we would know you better, know ourselves more accurately, and walk in obedience more faithfully. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Three great great questions. Plague or routinely come up in regards to man's existential search for meaning. Who is God? What is God like? Who is man? What are we like? And then what does God expect of us? How can I relate to this being? The book of Genesis provides us with the first, dare I say, the, the earliest, dare I say, the most fundamental answers to that question. We see from our previous studies in the previous weeks that the word of God begins with a bold assertion of the preexistence of God. He's there. Outside time and space, before there was a beginning, there was God. And he was and is and always will be. And of no necessity, this creator has made all that is. Last week, we looked at the first four days of creation. How God formed the cosmos in the span of four days. 
It must be remembered, and we'll come back to it next week. It didn't take him six days to make the earth because it took him six days to make the earth. He took six days to make the earth for our sake. But he made all that is in the span of six days. And in those first four days, he creates and forms the cosmos. I don't know about you, but it's amazing to contemplate the world around me. One of the things I love doing is going out into the country. Whenever I have the opportunity, I like to go to where there's no city lights, no, no ambient light, and I love to look at the night sky and behold the planets, the stars, and, and thanks to the, the star thing on my phone, I can you know, hold it up and, and tell what I'm looking at, Right? But, but then I love doing something else, okay? I love taking my binoculars, and at the night sky, I love looking at it. So look at the sky without binoculars, hold up binoculars. It's incredible how many more stars you see. It's incredible. And to, to think of how the planets are distanced from the sun, to think how the earth turns on its axis at, at just the right tilt. It just blows my mind. I, I, I love contemplating the cosmos in terms of its creation, the, the vegetation that exists. That, that there's, there's plant life everywhere. There's life every, even in the desert where, where you think nothing can survive. There's life. At the bottom of the sea, there's life. And, and we like to talk about the, the, the smell of, you know, bears can, a, a, a polar bear can smell a seal under the ice from two miles away. That's incredible. But salmon from thousands of miles away can, can like beeline right across the ocean, right back up to that stream where they were born. It's incredible. There are these amphibious frog salamander things that can literally freeze solid. And then when they thaw, they just shake it off and go about their day. It's, it's amazing to me. And so this week, as I was reflecting on all of this, I, I found myself just subconscious. Not, not even with any awareness, I just found myself singing a song, humming a song. Which is what the angels do at the works of God. And so, brothers and sisters, we're going to praise the Lord for what he has done by singing a song. So I want to invite you to stand as we do something out of the ordinary as we sing the mighty power of God. I'm going to let Wes lead this one, though. <laughs>
Thank you for indulging me. You may be seated. That's the song I was humming as I was thinking about that. And I wanted to sing it, not just because I needed filler, because I can, I can keep going, but I wanted to make the point that oftentimes what we do is we read this, this narrative, and our mind is immediately filled with questions, questions that need answers. We demand the answer, and we, and, and that is not the proper first response. The proper first response is to marvel and to praise. So, I really want to urge you, if, if you're stuck up in a cubicle and you haven't had the opportunity to go see something that makes you marvel, you're not looking hard enough. So take a trip or take a new look. Watch a YouTube video on, I mean, do something. But marvel at the wondrous power and the wondrous genius of our God. Now today we come to days five and six, the creation of what we could say sentient life. Vegetative life was created on day three, but in days five and six, he creates sentient life, the animals and humans. In day five, he creates the sea creatures and the birds that fly and fill the sky. What I love about the creation of animals and the, the sea creatures especially is he leads off, Moses does, he leads off mentioning in verse 24, let the earth, uh, I'm sorry, wrong verse. He leads off in verse 21, so God created the great sea creatures. Okay, the great sea creatures. He leads off with that one. Why is that important? Well, that's the Hebrew word tanim. It's, it's literally it literally means the dragons. It refers to those great creatures that according to the mythology of the pagans was the source of dread. In fact, in, we have archaeological evidence that in Canaanite religion, the, there was dragon opposition to the creation of the world by the gods. So in, in ancient pagan mythologies, these creatures that invoked fear and wonder in our eyes were sources of dread, signs of opposition to divine purposes. And here, what does the Lord declare? He declares that rather than being something in opposition to him, rather than being some force that that he has to work against. They're just another one of his creatures. And in, in fact, if you look in the book of Job, he goes even further, and, and it's depicted as if, as if they're like pets. So great and mighty and powerful is our God that the creatures that cause fear in the minds and hearts of people, those creatures are as to the Lord as pets. No source of fear at all. 
And the Lord commences his creation of animal life by announcing that those things that he, those things that we dread, they are completely under his control. And then he creates the animals from the ground, from the sea. It's amazing. Things that cannot, in ordinary providence, produce life at all. It says, and the earth brought forth from the ground. It's the response of creation to the almighty voice of its creator. The Lord creates life. He creates the sea creatures, the birds, and the land animals. And then we see the creation of man in verse 26. The creation of man here is the capstone of creation. In chapter 2, we're going to see the creation of man from, from a different angle. But here in this prelude, this prologue, the creation of man is seen as the capstone. In fact, it is the crown that adorns creation. Now, I'm going to come out of the gate and say something uh, that you may find audacious. But I want to say that the Word of God does a wonderful job of pushing back against this resurgent. I'm more concerned now with, with, with the, the false beliefs of our day than the false beliefs of 4,000 years ago. Okay, I want to push back against this resurgent paganism that says that man is just one of the creatures or that the creation is elevated above man, that the, that the world, that a tree, that a rock, that an animal is more important, that we exist to serve it, and that the creation of man is nothing spectacular. And then, of course, you have the atheistic perspective, which says you are nothing, you are nothing but a sack of atoms animated by electrical pulses. And all of that is false. But I want to say something here that's really audacious. According, I think, to the word of God, though we are created from the same stuff as the animals, not only are we not animals, because we are God's image, we are closer to God than we are to the animals. Indeed, Psalm 8, 5 says we are created a little lower than, and what's the word? What? The angels. That might be the translation because you know what the word is in Hebrew? Elohim. Who knows what Elohim is? It's God. Now, it's true, sometimes Elohim is used as a, as a, as a word for angels, that, but not usually. We were created a little lower than Elohim. Notice, and this, and this is important, it doesn't say we were created a little higher than the creatures. We were created a little lower than God. 
Your creation is special. You matter. There is no common person. As if some people are more worthy of life or dignity. Every human being is created in the image and likeness of God. So, the word of God in Psalm 8 says that we were created a little lower than Elohim and everything's been put under us. That's so true. But even here in Genesis 1, Moses wants to underscore that when it comes to the creation of man, things are different. As wondrous as it is to contemplate the creation of solar systems, as wondrous as it is to contemplate continents rising from the sea, all of it pales in comparison to the creation of our first parents. Several clues in this text tell us that this is marked out as something special. First, throughout this entire narrative, God is spoken of in the third person. But then, in verse 26, it says, then, introducing a new thing, drawing attention, breaking the cycle of all of the repetitiveness, then, God speaks in the first person. So there's a different person being used in terms of speech. Secondly, look at this passage. Almost everywhere it says, God says, let there be, let let the earth bring forth, let the whatever produce, and it is so. You, You see the power of a sovereign at work where he speaks and it just happens. But then, when it comes to the creation of man, God becomes a craftsman. And he's personally involved. We spoke last week about the use of the word bara, how it's the word for create, that in the Hebrew Bible is reserved only for God as its subject. Only God baras. Only God makes out of nothing. And, and this word is used in this chapter, in this, in this section. It's used five times. Once it's used in chapter 1, verse 1. And then it's used in chapter 3, verse, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 3. So it's it's there at the bookends of the section. The word barah is then used when God makes the tanim, the great sea creatures. But then look here at verse 27 of chapter 1. So God. So God barad, ding, man in his own image. In the image of God, he barad him, ding, number two. Male and female, he barad, ding, them. Three times it's reiterated that God barad man. Drawing attention to the fact that something unique is happening here. The text reveals that human life 
was set apart in relation to God by the divine plan, according to the divine pattern, for the divine purpose. Set aside by the divine plan, according to the divine pattern, for the divine purpose. What's the divine, what do we mean by set apart by the divine plan? Well, we see in verse 26, divine deliberation. This is the only thing that's ever made where God deliberates. Where we see, so to speak, we're given privy information to the creative process, the look inside his mind, so to speak. Let us create. And it's deliberation within the Godhead. For, for as long as this has been written, people have wondered, who's God talking to? And unfortunately, the most common answer is the least probable answer. The most common answer is he's talking to the heavenly court. I mean, if, if you take it from like the, 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 the interpretation given by Jews and Muslims and liberal Christians, he's talking about the heavenly court, the angelic hosts, the whatever. He's talking to them. Let us create man in our image. But that's the rub right there. What, there's a little word, our image. Angels are never, ever, ever, ever in Scripture attributed with the image of God. There is literally no basis for thinking that he's talking to angels as if they're part of the creative process, sharing an image with God and man. No, what we see here is really God's talking to himself. Now, I don't usually talk to myself in the plural. I don't. But I do often talk to myself in third person or second person. Ben, what are you going to do now? I'll say that to myself. I know I'm not alone. Just none of you are willing to admit it. And it's true that we have lots of historical documents from all over the world where people will refer them to themselves in the third person, we. Okay? So God's talking to God's self, but, but therein is the nascent seeds of the doctrine of the Trinity. Because we know from later revelation <clears throat> that when God is talking to himself, it's not just talking to himself the way we do, that there is actually three persons of the Godhead and we know that the Spirit is hovering over the waters. He's the agent of creation. And we know from Colossians and Hebrews that the Son is the great architect of creation. And the Father is the will. So the divine plan called for the creation of something unique. And we see that borne out in deliberation. We see a divine pattern in our image, in our image and likeness. Now, don't get too caught up on those two different words, image and likeness. They're, they're basically synonyms being used to underscore just how God's communicable attributes 
have been vested to us. Okay? In our image, kings routinely, rulers, great people, tyrants, whoever throughout the world routinely have set up monuments to themselves. Images, statues commemorating themselves. Images function politically for two, in two ways. They testify to the greatness of the one, and they assert the power of the one. Testify. That's the, the key that holds those two things together, to the glory and to the authority and power of the one being represented. And God has created us according to the pattern from the divine will in our image, in his image. The image of God is a term that is used to convey both the, it's used to convey the form, faculties, and function that together describe and make us what we are. By your form, faculties, and function, you are the image of God. When we speak of the form, we speak of the fact that when you consider our bodies, when you consider the, the, the way we are by design, we are a marvelous thing. In one sense, we're very frail. In another sense, we're very hardy. We have the ability to carry out and implement our will and our designs in a way that other things are very much unable to do. By our form, we are a representation of God's glory and God's rule wherever we are. This means that someone in a vegetative state who has lost use of their faculties is still the image of God. This means that the unborn whom you can't see is the image of God. This means that the person who comes out of the jungle and looks like a crazy thing is the image of God. This means that in our very biological makeup, apart from any actions, your life is sacred because it is the image of God. But then it's not just form. It's our faculties. Our, our faculties are amazing. We have the capability to relate. We have the capability to create. In fact, that, that is such a defining characteristic of humanity that the ability to create is, in the minds of many people, the single most significant thing about the Imago Dei. Humans are always creating. Humans have almost this intrinsic, uh, almost instinctive impulse to go and create stuff. Art, 
tools, even weapons. We create. You know, we, 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 you see people ooh and ah and marvel that a gorilla, but, you know, may pick up a stick and, 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 and use it like a tool to get honey out of a hole or something. Man, an 18-month-old human has far more creative power than that. There is nothing on this world that can stand up to the creative power that exists within the human mind. And humans are the most dangerous thing on the planet in a fallen world, unfortunately. The human mind and the human soul, it's wondrous. We have the capability to love in a way that and that the animal world, the created order, even the angels themselves can't fathom. Because we are in our faculties the image of God. But in our function, in modern days, that's where most of the emphasis gets put when we discuss the image of God. It's the function we have in the world. And in our function, we function as God's image. And so this gets right here to the heart of the purpose for which we exist. What is our function? In the pagan myths, you know why God's created people? Because gods get hungry and need fed. Gods get hot and need to be, you know, cooled off. And gods get thirsty and need to drink. And gods get cold, so they need better clothes. And the gods have needs. And so they created the help. That's the myth. But in truth, God created out of no need of his. He created us for dominion. He created us to rule on this earth as his deputies, as his vice regents, to subdue the earth. Not in a fallen world. And I say subdue, and what you automatically hear is exploit. That's because of a fallen world. But to subdue, and and as we're going to see when we look in chapter 2, One of the myths that goes on in this world, that the world would be better off without people, and the fact of the matter is, is we are necessary to the flourishing of this world. This world has lots of potential that man must form and bring out. But our purpose to have dominion is is to visibly represent God wherever we are. We represent his glory. We testify to his glory and to his authority. That is what an image is supposed to do. And so as we govern in this world, as we relate to one another, as we relate to the creatures, as we relate to the stuff of the planet, we are to testify to God's glory and to his authority. And right there you get a a little glimpse of what Christian living entails. Because the image has been tarnished badly in the fall. We can talk about that later. But we're being recreated according to Ephesians 4.24 and Colossians 3.10. You can look them up at home. We're being recreated according to the likeness of our Savior. And so Christian living then, as new creational beings, essentially is us going back 
to what we were originally created for, to glorify God by testifying to his greatness and to his authority. And so, that is what we're going to be doing in the new age. The divine purpose. You were made for that purpose. To represent God where and when you are. So to the answer, what is man? We are a physical being. We are tied to this earth made from the stuff of earth, but that's not just what we are. We are the, the union of material and immaterial, gendered as male and female, which we're going to get into in a few weeks. We are created with dignity, honor, potential, power. Yes, we have power. We can tunnel through mountains. We can split the atom. We can drain swamps. We can, I mean, there's, there's basically nothing we can't do if we put our mind to it. As big as this world is, the hunt for Osama bin Laden should prove to you, if people want to find you, they will find you. People are powerful. And we are commissioned under authority with both freedom and responsibility. It's wonderful to know that God didn't create Adam and Eve and say to go work and then expect them to run back to him about where every row of corn should be planted. Is it okay to chop down this tree? Should I plant a tree here? He's given them remarkable freedom to govern and rule as they see fit under his authority and in compliance with their responsibility to obey his word. So you have great potential, great power, great freedom, great responsibility. You have great dignity. You have great honor. You, brother and sister, I don't care what your life has looked like. You are the crown that adorns this creation. Resist and reject the lie that you are just a sack of atoms with electricity. You are special. You are closer to Elohim than you are to the chimpanzee. And in the final day, we will see you in your fullest, most realized form as you take on the new resurrection body that Jesus has purchased for you. Oh, what a day that will be. So brothers and sisters, never forget, there is a God, he has made you in his image, and he expects you to glorify him and represent his authority and his rule wherever you are.